Philippians chapter 3. And uh, let, let me just remind you of, of where we are in, in this uh, book as we took a couple weeks break for uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. Paul's writing to this church that he started. Uh, he started it on his second missionary journey. Uh, he's very familiar with the people in the church, the lives of the people in the church. Uh, he had won uh, the first converts to the Lord and planted them in this church. Their background was very diverse as it had a wealthy businesswoman. She was the first one, one to the Lord in Philippi, a woman named Lydia. The next person that we see come to the Lord is a slave girl who is filled with a demon, and Paul cast the demon out of her. Well, after that happened, they got thrown in jail, and Paul evangelized the jailer and won him and his family to the Lord. And so you've got this, this very diverse group of people with a wealthy businesswoman, a blue-collar jail worker, and a slave girl, and th these are the first believers in uh, the, the church in Philippi. And so Paul now is writing back to them. Uh, of course, the church has grown and, and the Lord has added more people uh, to the church since then. And so he writes to them to encourage them in some things. And so where we are specifically, Paul was talking about how we as God's people, we do not put our confidence in the flesh. And that is to say in our own ability or in our own works, but our confidence is in the Lord. And we sang about that this morning. We sang about how he's the one who works for us. He's the one who fights for us. He's the one who is delivering us. That our confidence isn't in ourselves. Now the world puts their confidence in, in themselves. But God's people, our confidence isn't in us, in our ability, in our uh, intellectual prowess, in, in our education. No, our confidence is in the Lord, not in ourselves, not in the flesh. And now he contrasted himself with these false teachers who were saying to, to put your confidence or were taking people's uh, uh, eyes off of the Lord and putting it back on themselves and on their own righteous good works and deeds. And Paul says, even though, if you'll recall, he said, even though I have a, a, a great resume, I have reason for confidence in the flesh, even though I could, if I wanted to, it wouldn't be wise, but I could, I've forsaken it all to follow Christ. Remember, he says he counts it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And then he talked about how he's not already perfect, but he presses on. He's, he's straining forward through every obstacle, through every challenge, from his own sin to the persecution against him. He, he is forgetting what lies behind, and he's pressing on to what lies ahead. He's pressing on to what God has called him to. Now, all of us have a past. All of us have things that we are not proud of. All of us have sin in our life that the Lord has set us free from. We all have a testimony, amen? amen? There's nobody perfect in here. If you think that you are perfect, listen to me today. I'm going to preach really hard at you and try and help you understand that you are not perfect, that we all need a Savior, and we look to Him for salvation. We all have a testimony. We all have a past, and we cannot allow our past to hold us back from the future that God has for us. You see, that's the work of the enemy. 
That's the work of condemnation. And Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God has set us free so that we can live for him. And so Paul says, I, I forget what is behind me. I forget the things that once held me back. I forget the sins that I once committed. That's not who I am anymore. I am a child of God. I am a saint of the Most High God. I press on. This is where uh, we left it off uh, a, a few weeks ago. And so we're picking it up right, right there in that, in that same uh, mind of thinking in verse 17. And so he says, brothers, join me in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray as we spend time uh, looking at it closely today that you would help us uh, to see what it is you want us to see today, to hear what it is you want us to hear today. Lord, let us and our hearts be attuned to the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, help us to live for you. Lord, it's not an accident, the times and the seasons and the place which we live. But Lord, your word tells us that you even preordained the times that we would live in. And so you have, have brought us, Lord, uh, to your kingdom for such a time as this. And help us, Lord, to be faithful in the time that you have given to each one of us to advance your kingdom, to take ground for you and for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, he, he starts this by saying that we uh, should imitate faithful ministers, faithful people. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so what he's saying here is that it's important that we as believers have godly examples that we can follow, godly examples that we can look to, godly examples that we can see the pattern of their life and see how it is that they follow Christ and that we should then join in in following them. Now, Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example. We follow Christ. Amen. He's the one we look to. He's the one we, we keep our eyes on. We are Christians and we follow Christ. Now, in addition to following Christ, what Paul is saying is that it is also helpful for us as we live out our lives in this world 
to have flesh and blood examples that we can see, that we can look to, people who contextualize the gospel and live it out for us, that we can see how it, it, what it looks like to live for Jesus in the times and the seasons that we live. And so what I want you to see is that Paul is not in any way putting himself on a pedestal. He's not in any way boasting in himself. He's already spoken candidly about his own faults, about his own failures, about his own weaknesses, about his past sins, about the fact that he is not perfect, but that he is, he is pursuing Christ. He is pressing on. He is overcoming in the power of the Spirit. And what he says to the Philippians is, as I do that, follow in my example. We have to keep in mind that Paul has continuously laid before us the power of the gospel, the power of the grace of God, the saving grace of God. And so we, we can't just come to this verse in isolation and say, oh, look how proud Paul is. Look at him saying that we should follow him. No, no, no. If we follow this train of thought all the way through Philippians, we see that's not what he's saying at all. But what he is saying is that we need flesh and blood uh, leaders, people that follow Christ that we can look to and see how they follow him and that they can teach and lead us. He's not putting the focus on himself, but he's saying, learn from me in how I follow Christ. And again, he told the Corinthians, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. It's very important that he didn't just say, follow me. That's what Jesus says. Jesus is the one who says, follow me, period, no qualifiers. Paul and every other godly leader has to say it this way, follow me as I follow Christ. Where, where we are following Christ, where we are living for him, where we are putting sin to death in our life, Every Christian leader should, should feel comfortable saying that, follow me as I follow Christ. But where we diverge, where we fall, where we sin, no, don't follow that. Don't follow those sinful behaviors, but yes, follow me as I follow Christ. And so likewise, just as the Philippians and the Corinthians looked to Paul, we too in our day and age should look to godly examples, godly men and women in our own lives who can show us what it looks like to follow Jesus today, in 2022. What does it look like in our country, in our context of living in Texas, in San Antonio, Texas? What does it look like as, as you raise a family or what does it look like as you're a, a grandparent? What, what do these examples look like? Yes, we look to Christ, he's the ultimate example but it's also helpful to have other men and women around us who can, who can be godly examples for us. Christian leaders who who's are, it, it is their job to set the example and to live a life worthy of following. And so Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 12, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but... Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. 
And I thank God that we have godly leaders in this church that are an example for us to follow. That we have godly elders and elders' wives that have walked with the Lord for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. Who, who, who can set an example of faithfulness for us that we could go to and say, how do you raise kids that love and serve the Lord? How, how do you have a marriage that lasts 50 years when today the average is seven years? I, I want to make it to 50 years. I, I want to make it till my last day. Well, what, what, what did you do and, and what, what patterns of life did you have and, and how did you guys work through the issues? We need those examples in our life that can flesh it out for us and, and show us how to deal with sin and how to battle sin, to learn from them and that they can teach us. You know, yesterday uh, we had uh, a, a funeral service and and uh, Brother Archie uh, did the, the graveside service, and I was there and uh, watching him, and I, I, I just stood back and, and watched in just amazement at him at 91 and 364 days, preach the gospel, just just lay it on, preach the, the power of Christ and the power of the resurrection and, and the power of the cross and the power uh, that, that Jesus gives us in our lives of victory over sin and, and the hope that we have in him of his glorious return. And I just sat there and I said, I want to be like that when I grow up, that godly example. And so I went up to him afterwards and I said, Brother Archie, I want to be like you when I grow up. And you know what he said? Yeah, you should be. No, that's not, no, that's not what he said. That's not what he said. He said, well, I don't know. I, you know, maybe some, maybe some parts, but not all parts. You know, he, he, just, he just exuded humility. And I just so appreciated that. And I just so appreciate the, the godly and the faithful examples that we have had in this church over the last 80 Years that have, have shown us what it looks like. Not perfect men and women, not perfect, but people who pressed on. People who were genuinely following Christ. You now think about my dad. He, he's obviously the one who's had the greatest impact in, in me and in, in my life, Dave Bell. And, and many of you remember my dad and, and were uh, blessed by him and, and his pastorate and, and his ministry and uh, in fact, it's going to be next month, the, the first Sunday of May will be 10 years since my dad passed away, if you can believe that, 10 years. Uh, some of you, I don't know why we're clapping for that, but uh, <laughs> we're honoring my dad, I, I get that. Uh, and so um, anyway, it, it's, it's hard to believe that it's been 10 years already, and, and some of you never knew my dad, and, and uh, I, I can't wait to introduce you to him uh, when we... Uh, see him in the resurrection. And uh, anyway, why am I saying this? My dad was such a godly example in my life. And even though he's been gone for 10 years, uh, hardly a day goes by that I don't think back to how he lived his life for the Lord, how he was a godly example in flesh and blood 
a tangible uh, leader that, that I can look to and say, he wasn't perfect. I can see where he wasn't perfect. And so I can see where, okay, I'll try to follow Christ in this area and not my dad in that area. But I can look at a lot of other areas and say, you know what? That was a great and godly example that I want to follow, that I want to model. And we need those examples in our lives. And it is, it is the elder's job in the church to set that example and I am thankful that we have elders in this church that I am um, humbled to be able to call myself a part of that endeavor to set an example for you on what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so the necessity, the importance of godly examples. But then in verse 18, he, he, he changes from talking about godly examples to ungodly examples, to examples of people that we should not be following, Pe people's lives that we should not pattern ourselves after. And he gives, uh, here in this, he gives six things about these uh, false teachers, if you will, false Christians, if you will, ungodly people uh, that we should not follow, that we should not pattern our life after, that we should not follow their example and, and the example of their life and lifestyle. And here in this section, he, he doesn't give uh, a rebuke of their doctrine as he did in the, earlier in the chapter. Instead, he puts the focus on their lifestyle. He puts the focus on how they live their lives and the things that they do and the things that they value and that people that live this way and value these things, though they may have the, the title Christian next to their name, we should not follow their example. And so uh, I want to walk through this quickly. I want to walk through the six things that he gives us and, and why we should not follow them. But the first I want to highlight for you is, is he says, uh, again, the attitude that we should have towards this situation, he says, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even again with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This, this situation breaks his heart. He, he is broken up over the fact that, that there are those who are leading people astray, that there are those within the church that are leading God's people astray. And it moves him to the point of tears. It, it breaks his heart. He, he says, I'm writing. And even as I write this, I'm so moved at this situation that I'm, I'm having to, to, to fight back the tears at the thought that God's people are being led astray by false shepherds. And this should be something that likewise moves our hearts as well that we should not be indifferent to the fact that there are people leading others astray today. Voices in the church and voices outside of the church. People who are teaching not the truth, but rather teaching falsehood 
and lies, people who are not opening the word of God and, and declaring God's word, but rather who are, who are twisting it, who, who are explaining away why what God wrote 2,000 years ago doesn't apply to us anymore. Paul says that this situation breaks his heart, and likewise, it should break ours as well. And if we have friends and if we have family that are being led astray, either by someone in the church or outside of the church, it should break our hearts as well, and it should move us. It should move us. Jesus says when he looked on the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep who had no shepherd. And sheep without a shepherd, a shepherd who guards, who looks after, who who takes care of, who feed them. So if we're talking in spiritual terms, who feed them the word of God, who guard them from falsehood, who guard them from lies, who, who protect them from wolves. Sheep without a shepherd are open to the attack of the enemy. Sheep without a shepherd are malnourished. Sheep without a shepherd are diseased. We're talking about someone's spiritual life. And so it says Jesus was moved with compassion. Here we see Paul is moved to the point of tears. If we know people in our lives who are coming under the influence, again, either voices in the culture or false teachers within the church, it should move us at least to the point of prayer. At least to the point of prayer. We would begin praying for those who are caught in lies, caught in a web of deception. uh, Because nothing good comes when you believe the lie of the enemy. Sin and unbelief and lies and deceit, it never stays contained. It always grows. It's like a cancer. And so as people incorporate into their lives false doctrine, it doesn't stay contained. It grows and it multiplies and it ultimately breeds death. The wages of sin is death. And so that we would be like Paul moved in this way, even moved to tears, moved to the point of prayer. And if God would open the door, an opportunity for us to in love speak the truth. And so that shows us the attitude that we are to have. And then he gives us six things that he describes these uh, people as. And I just want to lay them before you quickly. And these are written down for our benefit that we can discern, that we can determine, that we can exercise discernment and wisdom in our lives. And that we can evaluate is, is, is what is being said true or false? Is the messenger a false teacher or are they truly teachers of the word of God? The first thing he tells us about false teachers, verse 18, is that there will be many of them. Many of them. I don't want to belabor this point. I feel like I've shared this several times before, but he, I just feel like I have to say it again because it's right here in the text. He says, many of those who I have often warned you about. So we need to understand that false teachers aren't just a, a few over here just kind of scattered off in the corner and you never hear about them and you're never influenced by their teaching. No, in fact, what Paul says is that they're, they're prevalent. 
that they're very proactive in getting their word out. Uh, they're very uh, uh, good at communicating their message. They're prolific in, in the content that they generate, that there is many of them. And so because of that, we need to, as God's people, always be evaluating the message and the messenger. The message and the lifestyle of the messenger. The way that they live their life. And again, here in this example, he puts it on the lifestyle of the messenger. So many of whom I have often told you and even now tell you with tears, the second thing is that they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They are enemies of the cross. Think about that term for a minute. What does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? Well, I don't think it means that they're against uh, the crucifix. I don't think it means that they are against, you know, symbols of the cross. They're not against the, 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 the symbolism or they're not against people wearing jewelry that have the cross on it or putting a bumper sticker on your car that has a cross on it. That, that's not what I think he's talking about. What it means to be an enemy of the cross is, is to be an enemy of what the cross represents. So I think we could uh, safely say that what this means is, is to be an enemy of the gospel, to be an enemy of what the cross represents, to be an enemy of the atonement. I don't know if you know today, but there's a, a large movement uh, within what used to be evangelicalism against the atonement, against the doctrine of the atonement, against the doctrine of substitution that Jesus took our place. There are those who claim the name of Christ who are enemies of the gospel because they deny the substitutionary atonement. They deny the concept, the, the doctrine that Jesus on the cross literally took our place. That Jesus bore in, uh, in his body our sins. That Jesus on the cross experienced the wrath of God. So, so what is it that would cause someone to want to deny that doctrine? Because to me, that is a glorious doctrine that Jesus took my place, that the penalty and the payment for my sin that I deserved, Christ paid for. What would cause someone, what would be the motivation to deny that glorious truth? Well, they don't want to believe that God is angry at sin. To, 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 to say that Jesus paid the price for sin is to say that God has wrath against sin. And so because they do not like the idea that God is a God of justice and that one day he will separate the, the sheep from the goats and that one day there will be justice brought on the earth, ultimate justice of heaven and hell, of light and darkness, they do not like that idea. And so what you have to do, therefore what you have to do you see, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, say that God is not angry at sin, that God has no wrath against sin, well, immediately the atonement has to go out the door. Immediately it has to. And so what they say is that Jesus, he wasn't our substitute. He was just our example. Now, Jesus is our example. 
but he is also our substitute. And so what they will say is, well, he, he just showed us how to, how to live a life of sacrifice, but it wasn't an actual sacrifice for sin. This is very prevalent today in, with, within what used to be called, and I keep saying used to be called because the, the term has become so watered down, it, it hardly means anything anymore, but what used to be called evangelicalism, this was a, a central point, a central doctrine that Christ took our sins on himself. He, he took the, the wrath of God that I deserve. And he paid the price for sin. It used to be a central doctrine. There are many today who deny that doctrine. And Paul says that they are enemies of the cross. Though they may call themselves Christian, though they may be part of a, a, a well-respected denomination, if they do not preach what the Bible preaches about atonement, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. I want you to see here that this is not just false teachers that are enemies of the cross, but all those who reject the work of Christ are also enemies of the cross. There are many today who reject the gospel. They reject the gospel message. They reject the message that we are sinners who needs a savior. They say we are not sinners, that we are basically good, and that what we really need to do is Follow our own heart and be your best self and, and save yourself by, by self-esteem and self-actualization and, and that your real problem is that, that you don't like yourself enough and that if you could just learn to like yourself enough, then you would finally be happy. That's the, the opposite of the gospel message, but that's the message that our world teaches and preaches. And so whatever you need to do to be happy... Go for it. Whatever that is, whether you got to take this drug or, or that drug, whatever it looks like. Even to the point where we're, as a culture, encouraging people to take the life of their own unborn child in their womb or to mutilate their body parts. That's held up today as something that is good and noble and wonderful. It's helping you be your best self and helping you be happy, whatever it takes. That's if, if you are believing that false gospel, you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. Amen. The cross of Christ says, no, there is truth and lies. There is good and evil. There is righteousness and unrighteousness. There is God's good law. And then there is sin. And we need a savior to save us from our sin. That's the gospel. There are many today who reject the gospel. They reject the, the saving power of the cross of Christ. They reject the, the message of the gospel. They are enemies of the gospel. And let me just say, can, can I just be your pastor for a minute? Stop listening to people who reject Christ. Stop listening to them. Don't, don't, don't listen to them. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if someone rejects Christ, who himself is the embodiment of truth, 
they themselves have rejected truth. Therefore, they have really nothing to tell me that I want to listen to. I, I just don't. What, what do they have to tell me if they have rejected truth itself? So I'm not going to listen to unbelievers about how to raise my kids. I'm not going to listen to unbelievers about how to discipline my kids. I'm going to follow the word of God, which says, spare the rod, spoil the child. I believe the Bible teaches spanking. So we spank our kids. Some of you need to spank your kids. Actually, if you have kids, all of you need to spank your kids. I was talking uh, with somebody yesterday uh, at the funeral, and they were saying that, that uh, their parents used to spank them before church, just, just for, for what they knew they were going to do. I said, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Listen, I'm not talking about child abuse. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about discipline. In love, not in anger. Not in anger. If you're angry, don't spank your kids. Cool off. But then discipline them. Teach them that there is right and wrong. That there are consequences when you sin. That's what discipline is. It's showing them that there's consequences for sin. And you say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little bit of disrespect. It's just a little bit of talking back. You're right. Right now, it's not that big of a deal. When they're, when they're one and two and three, the consequences aren't that big. But guess what? When they're 23 and 24 and 25, the consequences grow exponentially. And so what discipline does is it, it trains children when they are young that there's consequences for disrespecting authority, that there are consequences for sin, and it helps to train them to love righteousness. Thank you, all the baby boomers that are giving me amens right now. I don't know where all my Gen Xers and millennials are on that. Okay. Um, enemies of the cross. So I am not going to listen to unbelievers on spiritual matters because they are spiritually blind. Now, will I listen to an unbeliever on earthly matters? Certainly, sure. I, I don't go to the dentist and say, are you a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? Uh, otherwise, I'm not going to let you uh, work on my teeth. No, there, there's common grace, right? We, li we live in a natural world and a physical world. I don't go through the line at the grocery store, and I'm not going to let you check me out unless you profess faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. No, no, it, but but on, on spiritual matters... On matters of truth, on, on matters of, 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 of the gospel, on, on matters of good and evil, on what is right and what is wrong, I'm not going to listen to people who reject the truth categorically. Because if you reject Christ, you reject the truth. And, and what that leads you to, to do is, is uh, I don't have time. I, I have to move on. Okay. Um, Look at the end of that, of that life. That, that's what he goes on to next. 
enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, where does that lead you? Verse 19, their end is destruction. This is where this goes. If you reject Christ, it's destruction. And I would submit to you, that's, that's ultimate destruction. That's if you reject Christ, you have no atonement for your sin. When you stand before God, you will be condemned in your sin. And you will either stand before God at, on the day of judgment, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, or clothed in your own filthy rags. And there are two destinations. It is heaven and it is hell. That's what the Bible teaches. You know who taught the most on hell of anybody in the Bible? By far, orders of magnitude more, was the one who knew the most about it. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who taught the most on hell because Jesus knew the most about it and he wanted to warn people as much as possible. So there are two destinations. And so the, the end for those who reject Christ, the end is destruction. So do not follow after people who are headed for destruction. But I would submit to you that it's not only ultimate destruction at the end of the age when Christ returns, but in any area where we uh, divert from following Christ, we will find destruction in that area of our life. And so if I do not submit to the word of God in my marriage, it will produce death in my marriage. The wages of sin is death. You either have Christ as King and Lord over every area, over every, every sphere, and if he is not King and Lord, if you do not have Christ, you will have chaos. It is Christ or it is chaos. That is it. And so in raising my kids and, and in my marriage and, and how I approach my career and, and work and, and in, in my interpersonal relationships, it is Christ or it is destruction. Those are the two options. And so we either are receiving Christ, we're either applying the gospel, we're either combating sin in our lives, we're submitting to the word of God, we're coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and, and we're, we're, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're either doing that or the enemy is getting a foothold in our life to which he will, he will, he will take that and he will use that as a wedge to bust open the floodgates of hell in our lives. It's either Christ or it's chaos. It's either the cross or it's destruction. Ultimately and also in every area and in every sphere. And so let me encourage you, where do you need to submit to Christ? Where, where have you been uh, placating? Where have you been nursing in your life pet sins? We have to eradicate them. They do not stay contained. It is a cancer. When you find out that you have cancer, what, what do people do? They immediately go under the knife and get this thing out of my body. Why? Because it will not stay contained. It spreads. Sin is the exact same way. You don't, you don't just talk, you don't go to the doctor and say, well, it's just a little cancer, so I'm just not going to deal with it. No, why? You know what, what will that produce? It will produce death. Sin is the exact same way 
in your spiritual life, in every area of your life. So where do you need to submit to the word of God? What little pet sin? Maybe it's private. Nobody knows about it. Submit it to the word of God. If you're not walking in victory over that and you've been fighting and you've been failing, it's time to bring in other brothers and sisters that you can trust, that are good godly examples. It's time to call your deacon. It's time to call your elder. It's time to meet with them and say, I've been battling here and I've been failing. And that's where we come in with God's word and the power of his spirit and pray together. And the Bible says, if you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, you will be healed. I believe that every Christian can walk in victory over sin. You don't have to repeat the sins of your grandparents, of your parents. Well, I was always this way, I'll always be this way. My family's been this way for, for five, six, seven generations and will always repeat this pattern of sin. No, you're part of a new family, the family of God. You've got a new spirit in you, the Holy Spirit. And you can, with the church body, with leaders who love you and who will guide you and will shepherd you and will pray with you and who will fight with you and who will hold you accountable, you can walk in victory. That's God's design for you. Not to be a defeated Christian, not to be overcome with sin, but to walk in victory, winning more battles than you are losing. Amen. Amen. Their end is destruction. The end of sin is destruction. In Hebrews 13, 7, the writer of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of of their way of life and imitate their faith. The writer of Hebrews says, look, look at the faithful leaders who have not wavered on the gospel, who have kept the faith. Consider the outcome of their life. Consider the outcome of their marriages. Consider the outcome of their families. Consider the outcome. He's saying, weigh it out. Weigh them out. And then follow those who have had an outcome that you want to have as well. He says, remember your leaders, those who taught you the word of God. Consider their outcome of life and imitate their faith. There is a, a, a way to live life that God designed for there to be love and joy and peace flowing in your life, flowing in your family's life. And then there is the enemy's way that is just fighting and arguing and animosity and wayward this and, and crooked that. That's not God's way. That's not God's plan. That's not what God has for you. Consider the outcome of faithful men and women and imitate their faith. How did they live? What did they do? 
And you put those same practices into your own life and you likewise will see the same outcomes. Amen. I got carried away on some things today and uh, so we're going to push pause here. We'll just pick this up right here next week uh, when we come back.